You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Outchul. Hi, everybody, and welcome to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco. This is episode 313, dated Wednesday. Yes, Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, first day of summer. With us, we have, as always, Peter Alcho, our good friend and colleague. Peter, has the weather in Missouri either gotten wetter or cooler? No, but it is the longest day of the year, uh, which means that it will get, days will get shorter, which means in the next two months they'll get cooler. So, you know, uh, it, it, it summer is coming, but fall is coming too, along with football. Well, well actually, the weather does get warmer for a while after the longest day of the year. That's just the nature of how we rotate the earth, but. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, I can always hope. I can always hope. That's true. You can always help. You can always help. Before we continue, let me thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be made available to the general public. We start out with our editor and producer, Raymond Gay. Thank you for what you do. Our media outlets, thank you for airing us when you do. We appreciate that very much. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline, thank you for posting our programs on Board 15 on your chat line. And also Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions, who archives our programs on my website. Just go to www.brancoevents.com. Arrow down until you get to In Perspective Podcasts. Click on those, and you will see our archives from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. There you go. And I want to say hi to a couple of listeners that listen faithfully. Raymond Irving from Rhode Island. Rick Troiano from Florida, thank you very much for listening to our program. And I also want to thank Kayla for being our host for today's show. One of the most common questions that is asked of me, especially by the blind community, is what's going on at Perkins? What's going on at Perkins? Well, I thought I would try to get as many answers to those questions as I possibly could. So we were very pleased and honored to have as our guest Patrick McCall. He is the super the assist, <clears throat> he is the assistant superintendent of on campus programs. Did I say that right, Patrick? You got it, Bob. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. So, so tell us what your duties are exactly. What do you oversee? on the Perkins campus. What do you do? So I, um, I, this is my 34th year at Perkins. So I started out as a program aide working in the residential program in the cottages. Um, I then went on to be an assistant house parent, a head house parent. I went to graduate school, became a clinical social worker, went back to graduate school, got my master's in educational administration, became an assistant education director for the secondary program, which is the high school program. And then I became the education director for the secondary high school program. And then in 2015, I became the education director for both the early learning center, which is preschool age students, the lowest school program, which is elementary and middle school age students in the secondary program. So I was the ed director for uh, two programs on campus. I was not the ed director for the deaf blind program. That was a separate person. <clears throat> and then, um, our superintendent, Ed Basso, came in about seven years ago. The superintendent position's relatively new at Perkins. Um, it, I think the first superintendent we had was 
probably in 2004. His name was Mike Beener. Mike's a legend in the uh, blind, uh, low vision education field. Isn't Dorinda Reif a superintendent as well? She was. So after Mike left, Dorinda Reif came in. Um, Dorinda came to us from Arizona. And then Dorinda left um, probably in 2014, I think. And I was the interim superintendent. <clears throat> and then Ed Basso was brought on. Ed uh, Basso was um, primarily in the field of deaf, deaf education. Uh, he was down at Gallaudet University. He was a superintendent. He was a principal. Um, he worked in a deaf blind program. He was an awake overnight, kind of jack of all trades, <clears throat> came to Perkins in the role of superintendent. Um, and then through um, kind of initiatives coming out of the CEO's office, who's Dave Power, um, Dave um, came in and he really wanted to see how do we take the um, needs of blind, low vision individuals, both students and adults um, forward. And Dave's first big initiatives were really to look at um, what happens when students graduate from Perkins or graduate with a uh, um, being blind or low vision. And so Perkins um, under Dave's watch and then uh, when Ed came on board, developed what was called College Success. It was a post-high school kind of like gap year program um, where students would come to the campus. They'd live in um, one of our dorms here. They'd um, focus less on kind of academic type courses, but um, more so on things like independent living skills, um, orientation mobility, um, the self-advocacy. They really focus, you know, they do some work on, you know, how do you make sure that you know how to write a paper? Um, so you enter college, hit the ground running, as opposed to having to learn a lot of things that they might not have taught while they were in school. And then uh, a new program came about called the Korea Launch, and that was really looking at um, – uh, people who are blind, low vision, who are unemployed, um, ages 20 up to 30, and they'd come on campus and they'd live here and they'd focus on job placement and developing work skills and creating resumes and learning all the things that are going to make someone employable. And then March 2020 pandemic hit. Oh, um, campus emptied. Um, those programs certainly went home. All the students that <clears throat> were on the Perkins campus um, went home. It took a bit. We had a student um, from China. He didn't leave until May. He was here by himself for a good month and a half. We had several students um, from quite a distance. We had a student from Hawaii, from Alaska, two students from California, a student from Chicago. Uh, so it took a while to get those students home. If you remember, like travel was restricted and, um, and then getting someone to China, you know, uh, where the virus essentially started was really hard. So we were told that the Chinese embassy in New York will give us uh, 24 hours to get this young man to an airport in New York to get him home. And we found out it was right before Memorial Day. So um, so kind of a lot of the work that we did on campus was remote learning. So all these things were coming about, and it really ended up not being in Ed Basso's bandwidth. Um, you know, the supervisor, the superintendent, role initially was to oversee on-campus program. It wasn't to really focus on new initiatives. Um, and so uh, in conversations with myself and with Dave Power and with the Board of Trustees, we developed my position um, to kind of be really kind of in charge of on-campus programming. 
Perkins also started what's called um, a CVI center here, cortical visual impairment. <clears throat> it's a leading cause of, of blindness um, in individuals across the globe. Um, it's a brain-based visual impairment. Um, and the uh, number of students enrolled here on campus, probably 60% of those students have this diagnosis of CVI. So Dave's idea, Dave's a real forward-thinking individual. He said, we got to, you know, how do we meet this need? You know, his initial need was kids getting um, out of high school, not to fear for college. Blind, low-vision people can't get with jobs. How do we address the CVI needs um, of the um, students that Perkins serves here um, in New England across the states? So Ed's like, I, I can't lead all these initiatives and continue to kind of maintain kind of oversight of the campus program. So my position, assistant superintendent, was created. I started last August 1st. Um, we had to backfill my position. And um, and so I did a lot of the same responsibilities I was doing the last school year. But we brought Jessica Brown in. Jessica was one of my assistant ed directors in the secondary program for several years. She um, also was an itinerant, usually uh, impaired. She worked at the Carroll Center. For the blind Newton, um, she worked for Perkins Community Programs. She was an assistant tech specialist. So had a very strong person to kind of come in and and um, take over my position. <clears throat> so that's my that was kind of my um, <clears throat> kind of initial um, thinking coming into this new position. We've been talking about it for a few years as Dave and Ed and the board came up with these new initiatives. Um, and one of the things that, you know, we did all this stuff around transition in terms of college preparedness and, and employment. And then we did the CBI stuff. And one of the things that we noted that we hadn't really done was focus on on-campus ed programs. Uh, you know, the investment in that was we always kind of provided the uh, students with good educational experiences. You know, we had a big focus on the expanded core curriculum in addition to academics. But how do we then kick it up a notch? One of the things that we <clears throat> noted through the pandemic was uh, it was great things happening remotely, but it was in isolation. Some really creative teacher would do something and we kind of, those would be highlighted because we'd be kind of as administrators zooming in and seeing things happening. And we're like, how do we take that skill and kind of spread the wealth and get everyone kind of um, up to a, a high level of competency and doing that and teaching that student braille or whatever it might be. Uh, we also looked um, one of the things that we've done through um, staff surveys was to say, what do you need? You know, we're, we um, have a very robust professional development program um, here on campus, but it's a lot of work and teachers are just like, geez, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of time during my lesson plannings to kind of look at all the professional development stuff because it comes with assignments and you get points and you get CEUs and you can potentially get some graduate credit. And so, they were saying we need more time and we need more support. So in conversations with Dave Power and then up through the Board of Trustees, uh, we have a new chairperson of the Board of Trustees, Steve Pelletier. Steve was um, the um, head of our education committee, which is a subcommittee of the board. Steve's a parent of a, a student that graduated from Perkins, as is Dave Power. Dave Power's son, David, graduated from Perkins. And they said, okay, what do you, what do you think you need? And so we said we needed more, um, supervising instructional teachers. So teachers that don't have a classroom, but what they're going in is they work with teachers on 
differentiated instruction, developing lesson plans. Massachusetts has very high standards and they have uh, pretty explicit um, state curriculum frameworks that we have to follow. Um, so our teachers were being bogged down with, I had to produce the material in Braille and large print, and then I had to go on to a student's note taker and I had to do all these things and kind of being able to kind of make sure that you're covering all the standards um, in say any level course, a high school English course or a physics course or an elementary um, humanities course. So we were told, we, you know, they said we need more support. So we requested and were approved to get um, several new positions, including um, supervising instructional um, teachers, supervising instructional related service providers, related services providers are speech, PT, OT, um, BCBA, school psychologists, social work, that go in and help them kind of do the job that they want to do and take out some of the complexity by, you know, tapping into different things that are happening across the campus and say, oh, you should do this, you should do that. And these, we've already hired some of those people into those positions, highly qualified, and they're going to be able to commit the time to spend with teachers and those related service providers to take them to the next level. Administratively, Okay, was Pat, I want to get back to the basics of the discussion a little bit. Okay. I graduated from Perkins in 1977, and I went on to college. There was a college preparatory division back then, yeah. and for those who weren't uh, qualified for college, for lack of a better term, they had a, a business course, they had work experience, they had a lot of programs back in the 70s, and I know that the school has evolved tremendously since then into a different type of a school. So my question is, if a student were to go to Perkins today, what would he or she be expected to learn? Great question, Bob. So I think from when you graduated in the late 70s to the presentation of the student Perkins today, um, and this really goes back to probably um, the change was mid eighties was, um, individuals that were blind, had low vision, um, could be served, um, quite well in a public school setting by bringing in itinerant teachers, bringing in TVIs, orientation mobility specialists, assistive technology specialists to whatever the extent that was back in the day. So the presentation of students at Perkins right now is incredibly diverse. A common theme is all the students upon admission have to have some level of visual impairment. That's just required. If they don't, then our admissions office says, oh, no, there's many other special education schools if you feel like that's what the need of the student is. But we have students that are, you know, graduating high school with a diploma. If you're from Massachusetts, you have to pass a high stakes test at the high school level, um, and English and math at 10th grade level, and you have to pass high school science. So it's either physics or biology or chemistry. But we also have a, uh, uh, we have students that come in that have significant intellectual impairment. Um, they may have no expressive language. They may have, they may have to use assistive communication devices. Um, and then we have every student kind of in between. We have students that fall into three loose categories. So we have those students that are on, um, you know, a high school diploma uh, path and they're very close to grade level when you look at the standards. Then we have students that are significantly below grade level. When you look at a student who's in, say, the 12th grade because they're 18 years old, they're not accessing those state standards close to the 12th grade level. They're very, very low. And then you have students that are kind of like, I think you said, business-oriented, Bob. They're just like they 
they they have their their academic um, coursework is much more functional, and so they're not taking algebra two, but they're focusing highly on you know consumer math. How do I budget my checking account? How do I access a accessible um, ATM machine? Um, and they they don't pass the MCAS. They just don't have the ability to pass these high stakes tests. They have three groups of students, um, and I think that's the the strength and beauty, but also the complexity of our school because we have to have the staff that can teach all those students. So the students that have a significant intellectual impairment, those teachers go to graduate school and get degrees in what's called severe special needs. So they they don't get they get very limited education on how do you serve someone that's blind or low vision, but they're getting educated on how do you teach students that are accessing those student uh, those state standards way below grade level. And the old term used to be mental retardation, style intellectual impairment. So those students are really focusing on expressive language, you know, getting their voice heard, whatever that takes through sign language or through devices. Um, it's also getting kind of engaged in the community because when they leave Perkins, they'll probably go to some kind of day rehabilitation program. They might live in group homes. Uh, and so the more they can um, express themselves, the more they can state what their needs are, the more they can do independently. Um, the, the environment will be like that with other individuals like them when they leave. So if they have significant behaviors, um, you know, you're going to go to a place that's going to have other individuals, adults that have significant behaviors. So our responsibility is to help the students kind of get those um, behaviors regulated. A lot of times that's just being able to have them communicate what their needs and wants are. So, Patrick, I am um, curious. Uh, I, I am not a, a, a person who went to a school for the blind. I was mainstreamed. Um, and so I'm more familiar with the public school system. And, uh, and you talked about sort of the three uh, students uh, groups that you that you uh, um, that you serve. And the school public schools have the same kinds of issues, maybe not quite as dramatic. And their their, their challenge is how do we educate these students? Do we how much integration is involved? How much uh, separation is involved? How do you sort of uh, walk that line? You know, you want people to be together, but there are certain skills that some students have that other students don't need and so on and so forth. How do you address that? Great question, Peter. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so you, you, we've never put a student who kind of falls into that category of significant intellectual impairment in a class with a student that's you know, getting a diploma. They, we have enough of a cohorts that are big enough um, that we can group students together. Now, our class sizes are very small. I mean, the you know, the the biggest size classroom would be something like a course. Um, but most classes, including those students that are going for diplomas, if we have two students that have to take algebra two as part of getting all their credits for the transcript to graduate, then there'll be a teacher that teaches those stu- two students five 50 minute periods a week. Um, but what we do is we treat, we, you know, we, one of the things that a lot of times students come to Perkins and again, it's, you know, no student really just has a, just has blindness or low vision. There's something else. There's something that's not allowing them to access the curriculum in a public school setting, something else that's not allowing them to be successful. Sometimes it's mood disorders like depression, anxiety. Sometimes it's um, other mental health issues um, sometimes it's something like cerebral palsy. Um, they have some comorbidity with some additional disability that requires something that's um, not available to them in their public school setting. Um, you know, so public schools do a great job serving the same presentation of students. Um, but a lot of times public schools um, 
are really challenged by the the blindness, low vision piece. They just don't kind of know what to do. And there's an incredible shortage of teachers of the visually impaired. So um, the referral might come into Perkins and say, can you serve them? We also don't serve kids that have incredibly challenging behaviors. Sometimes Mm -hmm. if you put some structure in place or you give students the tools to be able to express themselves, behaviors go away. Um, But if someone's coming in and they have to be restrained, we wouldn't even have them as part of a discussion about admission. We also don't serve students that have um, incredibly challenging medical issues. We do have students that have private duty nurses here. We require that. If they were, if they were to come to Perkins, we agree it's a good placement. Um, but their healthcare needs are beyond what we provide. We have nurses in on campus, but they're not really, um, for the individual students. They're like more case management and, you know, see kids in the moment when they're not feeling well. We would say that student needs a private duty nurse. We don't have any students that need private duty nurses residentially. Uh, we just don't feel like we have the capacity to do that. We do have nurses on call 24-7. That's fairly new. I want to say we did that maybe the year before the pandemic. We have a nurse that's here. They're on campus. So, uh, and, and part of that, a big reason for that was if a student, say, had a seizure on a Saturday night and needed to go off to their emergency room, um, we needed someone to kind of put eyes on them and monitor them to allow them to come back on campus because not having a medical professional, it would just be relying on residential cottage staff to monitor them, and we weren't comfortable with that. So we did do that. That's helped a lot of students not have to go home or parents have to get to the hospital from a great distance. Um, so I think that's um, the, the way we kind of we, we separate the students. So, we, so just from our dorm perspective, uh, we have in the secondary program, there's five dorms. Well, there's really, yeah, there's five dorms. But when students come in, we categorize them through an assessment tool called the Independent Living Skill Assessment. And that's 600 different questions that you ask the student, you ask the family, or someone using the occupational therapist, you know, puts that information in and it will indicate they fall on a level of independence between one and five. One's the least independent. 600. 600 areas, yeah. So if you can think of it's everything from shaving to tying your shoes to cutting with a knife. You know, if you think about what we do from an independent living perspective, if you think about just you wake up, what do you do? You know, can you shut off your alarm clock? Can you get out of bed? Can you make your bed? You know, so what what happens is when this assessment get done, gets done, a number comes up and the student falls within a one to five. Well, you know, younger kids are usually at one. You know, young kids aren't as independent. So they would go into the dorms all over a May cottage. Those are level one dorms. As they get older or they get more independent, they can transition to level two dorms. That's Brooks and Fisher. The most independent group living environment is Keller Sullivan Cottage. Um, so the students, that's a level three. In that dorm, students make their own breakfast. They make their own dinner. Most nights, they have to go to the supermarket, use customer service to shop. Um, they go to laundry mats to do the laundry. They organize in their own activities. Then we have a level four. We have an apartment that's connected to two dorms. So it's a two-bedroom apartment. Staff live Bennett. on the second floor. Bennett, yep. Staff live on the second floor. They have their own um, kitchen. They have their own living room. Uh, you know, but staff living there, and there's offices. So staff walk through all the time. So it's not an independent apartment because people are just in there. And, you know, if, if I walk in to go see someone in their office and the kitchen's a mess, I'm going to note that. I'm going to say, hey, you know, you, this is there's a level of responsibility here. They do, they pay all their own bills. It's all through mock checking account. They have savings accounts. 
And then we have apartments across the campus over in the Nagnus and Potter Cottage. I mean, I'm sorry, Glover and Potter Cottage, um, which are independent living apartments. Students, it's a two, they're very, they're renovated old dormitories that are stunning apartments. We have students that live there as roommates. They do all their own cooking. They have to get up in the morning. Teachers go in once a week and they're teaching them additional skills. Other staff go in and make sure they're doing everything they're supposed to do, but it's, it's really a really good preparation for going to live in a dorm because you know, if you're not getting up because you're on your phone till two in the morning, you're going to be late for class. You know, you're going to lose that privilege. And, you know, like in college, if you don't get up for class, you know, you feel your classes get picked out. So. So, uh, um, obviously, uh, as you said, most of the folks with least skills are going to be younger, but they're going to be younger people with more skills than some older people. Right. I would imagine that's the case. How do you sort of adjust for those age? Things, you know, yeah, yeah. Here's that question yeah. I'm asking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, so, um, what happens within our dorm setting? So in the secondary program, 72 students, I think maybe 38 are full-time residential. So they're here seven days a week. Some students go home on weekends, but they can certainly stay if they want to. Um, and we're also bound by Massachusetts Department of Ed. It's called Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. We're bound to only have students together within 48 months of each other. Ah, okay. Um, and so uh, we wouldn't have a 20-year-old living with a 14-year-old. Right. Um, right. But within a dorm setting, um, the students that need more support that are less uh, independent will have teaching assistants that work with them directly. Other students who are more independent that um, are closer to grade level would have no teaching assistant with them. They would just have dorm supervisors that would be helping them with their instruction. Um, and so that's how it really ends up being. Um, and then you, you, you're always looking at the dynamic, like who sits what, you know, you, you want to put, um, you know, appropriate peers with each other at, you know, lunchtime tables or in certain dormitories. Um, we do have what's called the Grosbeck Center for Students um, in Technology uh, on our campus that has, a um, student center, which has a radio station and a recording studio. And, you know, you go there any night of the week and it's packed. And so all the students go there. So even if just because of your age, you don't have a lot of other students that are kind of appropriate or, or, or comparable peers, you know, you, your dorm might just be the place that you really kind of maybe have meals. You might you sleep there, but you go out. And there's so many opportunities. You know, we have our pool here. You go swimming at night and use the gym. Playgrounds and things like that. So even if just because you're younger, there's not a lot of comparable peers, we we kind of um, foster those experiences by having a lot of activities that students participate in. And so sometimes it's you know you might invite a friend over from your, another dorm that is more of a peer than say um, all the kids that live with you. So I understand that uh, schools for the blind you know try their best to transition. Uh, schools into the local high schools, you know, uh, yeah. as they get older and more, uh, independent. How does Perkins deal with that issue? Yeah. So, uh, many years ago, we, um, would frequently send students to Watertown High School to take a class. It's less restrictive. It's more typical. Um, those students that did that were going to get high school diplomas. They're thinking about college. So, you know, being in an algebra two class with two students, um, gives you a lot of individualized attention instruction. But if you're ever at Watertown High in an Algebra 2 class with 25 kids, that's 
that's more typical, and that's certainly what college would be like. So uh, we had a great relationship with Watertown High. Uh, it was great opportunities for students to learn mobility skills. How do I take, at the time, taxis over, and uh, how do I arrange transportation? You know, you need buffer time on each end. Um, and then Watertown had a new um, superintendent that came in and switched their schedule system. So they worked off of six days. So it was never consistent Monday through Friday. So Monday was day one. And then the next Monday was day six. six. And then Tuesday was day one. And I think they did that to just avoid missing classes on like Monday holidays. And so yeah. okay. we, we don't have the flexibility with our schedules on campus because they're so individualized. So that went away. We do have a student right now, though, that is taking classes at Cambridge Ridge and Latin. Um, that's a, a little bit of a, a, a more of a distance in Watertown High School, but she's taken, she took uh, a class last year. She's taken two classes this year. She will go to Cambridge Ridge Latin, I think probably for her senior year. Uh, we do have students that take uh, classes at Mass Bay Community College. We have students that took classes at Bunker Hill Community College um, to give them that experience. You know, a lot of times, uh, a parent saying, I really want my kid to go to school. You know, they're, they're, they, you know, they're pretty close to grade level. No one in our family's ever gone to college, but this is going to be a rising star. And we'll say, okay, we'll try it. So, you know, Perkins pays the tuition, um, because we collect tuition dollars from sending school districts. So, and, you know, and sometimes the best lesson learned from that is not that you're getting three college credits, but it's like, yeah, college isn't going to work. This isn't what I want to do. How does Perkins, Mm, let's see. Here's how I want to word the question. Since Perkins works with these schools, how does Perkins make sure that these schools make the materials accessible to the students that get referred there? Yeah, so um, interestingly enough, it's uh, universities and schools are obligated to have, I think, um, through um, the 504 laws around uh, so rights of having a disabilities office, you have to have it if you get any federal funds. Um, and so when we talk to students about what we go to college, we'll say, what's their special um, needs office like? <laughs> Are they strong? Um, at Bridgewater State, the person that ran it was blind. Uh, we had we were like the farm system for sending students to Bridgewater. Every kid went to Bridgewater State that was going to college. Uh, he retired. Um, still a good school, pretty accessible. But um, that's part of the college experience for our students when they're enrolled with us in the secondary program is, but, you know, you got to go and figure out what the special um, needs office will provide you. What won't they? Can a, prof- can a professor say, I don't, I'm not letting you record me. Uh, what are your rights? Uh, there's no IEPs in college. We say that to the students all the time. You know, IEPs are mandated that we provide accommodations. Um 504 plans of what happened in college, and they're not mandated um, to kind of do certain things, but we really work with the students because that's a huge piece of college, just being able to access things. How do you use their uh, volunteer system at a college? How do you make sure that a professor gives you you know additional time? What's a reasonable accommodation? Uh, I think colleges have come a long way. Um, they really... Um, are inclusive in trying to get individuals with disability to be successful in college. Um, providing, you know, some accommodations is just level on the playing field. Um, and that's probably the, the biggest lesson when our students take those courses at community college to figure out how do I advocate for myself? How do I get what I am entitled to? Entitled to what do I do? 
when I'm denied something? How do I connect with people to um, help me, you know, maybe get around or, you know, become um, part of a social experience? So, Bob, how are we doing for time? Bob? Well, right now, I think it's time to get our participants involved with the program. You are listening to In Perspective. I am Bob Branco, and my co-host is Peter Alchel, and we have with us Patrick McCall, Assistant Superintendent for On-Campus Educational Programs at Perkins School for the Blind. So what I would like to do is ask Kayla if there are any hands raised so that we can get involved with our participants. You do not have any hands at the moment. All right, just oh. interrupt us, Kayla, when we do. You it doesn't matter. You just got one. We, as soon as we, I said we won't that, know otherwise. Uh, uh, Teresa oh. just raised her hand. Okay, Teresa, welcome to Win Perspective. Teresa, Are you unmuted. I hear you. Yes, I am. Okay. I did not Go ahead, Teresa. Okay, I, can you hear me now? Yep. Yes. I, okay, I did not attend school in Massachusetts. I didn't. I wasn't born or raised in Massachusetts. I went to. I attended the School for the Blind in West Virginia. If anyone knows Betsy Grenovich. She and I were um, classmates for nine years, and she reads. And she reads very well, by the way. I should say, um, I'm grateful that I received my education. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm grateful I earned my education at the School for the Blind in West Virginia. However, I have um, noticed through um, you know reports I've heard that a lot of the academic standards there have declined. Over the last, oh, I'm not sure, 30 years maybe, uh, there were a few graduates I know who graduated in the early 90s that did go on to college, but not many. And there used to be a scholarship um, given uh, for one deserving student. It wasn't the amount wasn't very high each semester, but I remember going to the alumni in 1988, and somebody was wondering. What are they doing with that scholarship money now? Do they even do they even have it? And some of us used to even talk about the um, instruments that uh, the students played in band. Were they even being utilized? This was a conversation I heard back in the mid '80s. So I guess fortunately I graduated in the late '70s where I did I did uh, take both levels of algebra. I didn't do so well in the second level, but I did I did take it. I took geometry, I took biology, physical science. My strong points were um history and English and I also enjoyed learning to type. And this was way before the days of computers. So how, uh, I would imagine uh Pat that this is a problem that uh uh, Perkins has too. I mean, uh, more, more and more of your students have other disabilities and there, yes. there are, there are fewer folks who are, you know, who are going for the college degree and it makes the whole educational experience more challenging. How do you right. sort of, I, I, yeah. I feel sorry for the ones who don't have all the secondary disabilities, <laughs> but who aren't getting the, um, who aren't being served and receiving the, um, the academics they need in order to um, maybe possibly go to college. And that makes me sad. Yet I, I did hear you mention, Pat, that one of your students is taking courses at Latin Ridge or whatever they have that, that school is that you mentioned, where Patrick, Patrick Ewing went so uh, a, yes. a long time ago. So talk about yes. how, how you sort of 
Because, you know, the world is so different from Betsy when Bob, like Bob and I went to school Betsy and I were in or Betsy and Melissa were uh, there. Um, how do you sort of, how do you, how do you, and, and one more, one more thing. I know that there are several blind folks that I'm aware of who went to public school and found they didn't yes. succeed there for whatever reason. You know, they, they, they didn't. Right. They, and so they went to school for the blind. How do you, how do you serve those students? It's a different world. I attended, um, World Services in the early 90s, and there was a young man. Uh, Teresa, Patrick's answering the question. Go ahead, Patrick. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. That's okay, Teresa. No. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, you know, as I said, like the, the, the presentation of the students that come to Perkins has evolved over time. So, um, Perkins employs, I think it's 40, um, itinerant teachers of the visually impaired orientation mobility instructors that are employees of Perkins, and they go out into um, the, you know, New England and they serve students in public school settings. Um, some of the students have intellectual impairments and their school districts feels like they can kind of provide the appropriate education, um, to those individuals with some TBI support, O&M support. But there are other students who, uh, you know, just go to their local public high school. Um, you know, depending upon the age, the TBIs might be, um, with them quite a bit to begin in terms of, Teaching Braille. A lot of what the itinerant teachers do with public school staff is they. Now, for the record, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Patrick, but for the record, there are listeners who may not understand these initials. TVIs means teachers of the visually impaired? Correct. That's right. Yep. Okay. And IEP means individual educational plan. Right. Individual educational program. Correct. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not everybody knows these initials. Right. That's why. Special education is a lot of acronyms and yeah. I forget that. <laughs> that not everyone's going to know what that is. Yeah. So teachers visually impaired, Harkins employs, um, a bunch of those that don't work on campus. They just go out in the community. They, um, are making sure that, uh, you know, that the staff at the public schools understand the needs of the student. Uh, they work with the students on those self-advocacy skills, you know, to reach out to a teacher and say, you know, I need something different or I need, you know, I need something um, in a different format. Um, and so those students um, participate in public school um, just like those that don't um, have vision loss. And so they'll, you know, they just take their classes and they may go to college. They might not. They may go work competitively. They might just go home and crash on the couch. And um, I think what, um, what's unique about our school is that um, we do have a um, big focus on the expanded core curriculum um, to ensure that students are getting instruction in career education, independent living skills, assistive technology, um, self-advocacy. Um, we really, they have embedded in their school day. You might have, you know, you might come in and you have first period, you have English, second period, you have geometry, geometry. Third period, you have home and personal management. So you're going to a uh, classroom, which is going to be a teaching kitchen in one of our dormitories, and you're learning how to prepare food. We have a vibrant um, music program. Um, students do play instruments. Um, it, it's, you know, the in recent time, we've probably had small orchestra of maybe four students that really had the ability to play an instrument, but also kind of work as a ensemble. Um, but all students have access to music if they want. And so we have music therapists that come in. Uh, our, our, the head of our music department will teach any, any instrument to any student. He'll say, I'll pick it up. So things that, that allow someone to say have, um, 
some semi uh, hemiparesis, which means you, you're paralyzed on one side. You can play this thing called the Q chord, and you know you can use and adapt materials. But you know students take electric guitar, folk, um, you know acoustic guitar. Right now, today we're having we're in our last week leading up to graduation on Friday. So uh, today we're having a talent show. So students are coming in, some are singing songs, some are telling jokes, some are playing instruments. Um, so the question around Teresa around the scholarship is that Perkins has an endowment and people have given money to Perkins since 1829. And we can use those funds certainly for certain things. Um, and it just in recent time, nobody's been appropriate for that. So, um, but like we have a very generous benefactor in terms of helping support our music program. And, you know, we go, we want for nothing here. Uh, to the point where we're really looking at our organ, um, which needs some significant renovation upkeep. Um, the Dwight but, Hall uh, organ? The Dwight Hall organ. That's right, Bob. Fixing that. Yes, I'm hearing a lot about it. <laughs> it's not cheap. I mean, we, you know, it will be played this Friday. Uh, uh, we um, play Pomp and Circumstance, and um, but it need, it's in disrepair so much. So, but that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, the music department, I check in with them all the, all the time. We have a very generous donor. They give money every year. What do we need? Um, you know, it's not like getting 10 wind instruments and 12, you know, percussions. And it's, it doesn't operate like that. It's more individualized based upon what the students need. You guys do have another hand whenever you're ready. Let's, let's take it. All right, Kayla. Who, who would that be? That would be Dennis. Dennis, you're next on In Perspective. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Mr. McCall, I have uh, one question. I think I have a follow-up, too. What is the percentage of students from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts whose sole disability is blindness attending Perkins? Jeez, uh, Dennis, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't have that data. I can tell you the students on campus, um, really no one, I would say, has just um, blindness or low vision is a diagnosis. Now, you know, I think the evolution of, of people being, you know, kind of more willing and accepting to disclose things like depression and anxiety. Um, you know, if the student's not going to school, uh, because whatever reason they're feeling bullied because they have a vision loss or whatever, you know, well, that's depression, you know, and so they're not going to go to school. They come to an environment like Perkins where, you know, walking around using your cane or, you know, Using a, a braille note taker, you know, it's the norm. It's not the, you're not the unique one out that you might be in a public school. Uh, I'd say the primary disability would be vision loss, but uh, there's something else going on. So, uh, just to, uh, your response really, uh, cut me uh, short because I expected you to say something. I'm, I'm making this number up that say 25% of your students were were there with with the only disability they have of being blindness because that's you know when when Bob and I were in school that I think yeah. was probably eighty percent or ninety percent or probably mm-hmm. a lot more than that. What I'm hearing you say is it's very it may be none none at all that right. almost yeah. everybody yeah, there no, is, that's exactly it. You go to other state schools for the blind they just have a different um model like uh, you know Perkins is part of what's called uh, Council of Schools for the Blind so it's all the schools for the blind including West Virginia and. Um, you know, all the schools and, you know, and so when I go to a yearly meeting down at, um, down at APH in Kentucky, I, you know, we meet with each other and, and they, they just have different processes. Like, 
if you go to North Dakota, I think, I think they have like maybe Nebraska, like they have three TVIs in the state. You know, I have three TVIs on my hallway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so the way they educate their students is they will bring them to the school full blind and their primary diagnosis is just vision loss. And so it just operates different. Massachusetts has um, Parkins is part of what's called the MAPS organization, which is Massachusetts Association of Approved Special Education Schools. There's 72 of them. Um, so Massachusetts is very pro special education. So there are schools that serve students that have significant behavioral challenges. There are schools that serve students that, um, you know, have orthopedic issues. There are students that schools that serve students that have complex medical needs. Um, we, we set, we set, we have schools. There's a school that serves students that are deaf. We send some of our itinerant teachers into those private special education schools. Massachusetts is very fortunate where I think other states just um, you know, it's out of desperation that they have no other options in terms of providing the vision services um, through a teacher, the visually impaired orientation mobility instructor. Um, uh, you send them to the, to the schools for the blind. And I can tell you in talking to those people, when those students go in, um, they want to stay. You know, all of a sudden they're playing goalball. And, and because there's such a need to kind of rotate individuals in and out, give them those additional years of instruction, get them proficient in Braille, get them good with assistive technology, get them good with their expanded core curriculum skills. They go out and the kids are like, I, you know, I, these are my friends. I get to play goalball. I don't get to play sports at my schools. Florida State School for the Blind, um, huge school. Um, they don't serve students that have orthopedic issues. They don't serve students that have significant behavioral challenges. They don't um, serves students that aren't close to grade level. It's just, that's their model. Interesting. Dennis, do you have any a follow-up question? I, I sort of hijacked your question, if you're still there. I don't hear Dennis's voice. I hope uh, your question got answered. It's, it's certainly startling. Still there, Dennis? Can you hear me now? Yeah, now we can. Yes, yes, we can. I, I got muted somehow, and I don't know how, but... um <clears throat> Um, you, you kind of led into it in a way. Is it difficult to persuade local school officials because of the cost of attending a school like Perkins that this is something, um, that a municipality should in fact, um, expend costs on in terms of sending someone to Perkins? Yeah, it's not like convincing so much. Um, you know, the process is, um, you know, a student comes out of early edu- early intervention and and then all of a sudden they're on an individual education program. Um, and the school district, um, through a series of assessments, makes the determination of what those that student's needs are. So do they need teacher visually impaired? Do they need orientation mobility instructor? Do they need speech and language pathologist, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist? And sometimes a school district might be like, we don't have all those people, uh, but this student needs that level of service and all those services are there so they can access the the standard curriculum. I mean, that's really the intent of it is to, to get them so they can be able to be just like any other student and, you know, take uh, coursework at kindergarten level that's equal to the non-disabled peers. And so, um, so a school district might refer a student in, a parent might say, I want my child to go to Perkins um, it's it's really a team decision. So uh, a school district can't, without <clears throat> having a big discussion about it, say no. 
Um, sometimes students have to kind of fail into being referred to Perkins. Like it's just not working out in a public school setting. If you're from Massachusetts, um, the individual districts that send kids here, they, they pay the, they pay our tuition, which is significant. Um, and what happens is say you're in Boston and they, uh, you know, Boston's a massive, um, public school system. Uh, they have many special educators. They have a ton of teachers that are visually impaired. Uh, but we do see students that come to Boston, Boston, just because of the, the complexity of their needs. Um, Boston pays our tuition. Um, but the state of Massachusetts reimburses them, um, quite a bit, up to 75% of, um, the cost of our tuition after $40,000 or something like that. So, uh, sometimes it's cheaper to send the student to Perkins as, as opposed to, we have to make sure we have a speech and language pathologist, a physical therapist, you know, t- teacher the visually impaired. Uh, transportation gets reimbursed too. So transportation is very expensive. So districts don't have to worry about paying for that or they get reimbursed for it when they send students to Perkins. Sometimes it ends up being, um, uh, you know, it go, they, they do go through due process. If a parent disagrees with the program that a school district's providing, say in district, they can reject the individual education program. You can reject it. You can reject the placement page in it. Um, what happens is the Bureau of Special Education, Bureau of Special Education Appeals is a agency in Massachusetts that will, you know, within a certain amount of time, they have to review, um, the rejection. They might bring a mediator in. They'll say, well, what do we think? You know, and, um, and then some, conclusion comes out of the mediation if the family or the district doesn't agree with that and then can go up to due process and go through the court system and then a judge will make a decision um so oh sorry yeah again i was gonna say so, associated with that there's a there's a lot of attorney fees so sometimes we'll just say yep we'll send the perkins <laughs> so i uh, you've talked about parents and i i am uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a whole conversation going on as you i'm sure you're well aware between the about their role of parents in education and how it's changed or not changed or should change or whatever, uh, a major hot topic these days. How does the role of parents, um, come into play at Perkins, especially since Perkins is a boarding school? How does that work with parents? How, how, how do parents get involved? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we tell parents, um, outside of their child, they're the expert on their kids, right? And so, um, we, you know, we have, um, we have what's called the site-based parent advisory group. So we have a group of um, staff and parents that meet every six weeks remotely at night. And we just talk about our school improvement plans, our professional development plans. When we talk about our school calendar, we bring it to them and we say, what do you think? Each program has a parent advisory committee and elected position. So they hold um, elections and parents run for president, vice president, treasurer, secretary. I meet with them monthly. Um, Every student in the program has, at Perkins, has uh, a family contact. So someone that has time in their schedule each week um, to reach out to a parent as much as they need. Um, not every parent needs a half hour every week. Some parents need three hours every week, you know. Um, we are currently in the process of um, having a director of family engagement position. We just are going to the, the process of kind of putting that job description together. That person's job is going to be, I wake up in the morning and how do I engage families? 
Uh, as we put the job description together, we brought an outside consultant to help facilitate our discussion. We brought a parent in, a student, uh, like a Ken Sparkins, to get their perspective. And it's really about, like, what do you need from us? How do we partner with you and your child to provide the best experience? How do we help partner with you around seeing what's happening in your home community? How do we help partner with you around advocacy at the state level in case um, what we're seeing here in Massachusetts is that the adult level, the adult voc rehabilitation level, which is Mass Commission for the Blind, Mass Rehab Commission, Department of Developmental Services, um, they, they've come out of the pandemic struggling. Um, they just don't have staff that can um, support adults. It's just, um, you know, you can go work at Amazon and make more than you can working yep. with adults with disabilities. And so, they're, you know, so we're getting parents to kind of advocate, we'll figure out how to pay those people more so you recruit and retain people. Um, we uh, we have two minutes to go, so there's time for one more caller. I don't know if there are any hands raised, but if not, we'll just wrap it up pretty soon. Our hands are currently clear. Okay. Thank you, Kayla. So in closing, Pat, what do you see as the future uh, for Perkins? Anything new on the horizon? Yeah, I, I so this is my... I started in 1989, my 34th year. I've never been more excited for our new initiatives on this campus than I am today. Um, we are providing, um, you know, the support teachers need by putting these instructional coaches and supervising practitioners in place. Uh, we're doing comparable positions in our dorms. We just, we created a position, the director of student life that's looking at, um, you know, the education the students receive residentially and after school sports and programming and weekends. And it's just the most, it's like, I, you know, I'm getting up towards retirement age and I keep telling my wife that I thought it was going to be this age. I think I'm pushing it a little farther out because I'm really loving what we're doing right now. Um, and that really goes to speak to the efforts on Ed Boss, who's our superintendent, Dave Power, our CEO, and a very active, engaged board of trustees. Like this group of people who dedicate their time um, to ensuring that Perkins, you know, is an institution that, you know, um, kind of continues on the heels of its history, but is looking innovatively at what we're doing next. We're actively recruiting for um, certified assistive technology specialists. It's a CADIS certification. So, you you know, we have people that can come in and help the students with any new technology that comes their way. Um, so, again, Bob, I just I feel so hopeful for for our school right now. And you have every reason in the world to be hopeful, Patrick, and we appreciate you being on with us. I know you're a very hardworking person, so thank you for taking the time to be on In Perspective, letting everybody know what's going on at the Perkins School for the Blind. I hope that you answered a lot of burning questions that I hear about from the blind community. Thank you very much, Pat, for being here. Great. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, everybody. Have a great summer. And I want to thank, also thank Peter, of course, for being the co-host of In Perspective, as always. I want to thank Kayla, our host uh, for ACB, and making sure that we know who's going to be our participants. And thank you to our participants as well. Next week, which will be our normal schedule, Friday, June 30th, we are scheduled to have once again former New York Congressman John LeBoutlier. That should be fun. And no, Thank you, everybody. Go and, safe and, with God and, and abundant no, blessings. Have a great week. And note, it's not June thirtieth. It's June. Uh, sorry, it's not June. Not this Friday. It's next Friday, June tw- June thirtieth. June thirtieth. Yep.